This is Think Like a Genius. Tread the line of cognitive psychology, neuroscience, persuasion, and so much more than gray matter. Let's dive in as we fall into a world of intrigue. And now, Think Like a Genius with your host, Lance Vantanar. Welcome to Thinking Like a Genius podcast. Today's interview is with Michael Otterberry, and I had the pleasure of actually speaking with him before we actually had this interview set up. Michael has got a really unique education program that he's involved with at the moment. He's also very well recognized for his work that he does with a younger demographic of teenagers and mostly schoolgoers and also has been recognized for his work within various groups for the outreach programs that you do. And you're also an author. Is that correct, Michael? Yes, I am. Yes, I am. I wrote a book, Be Encouraged, 250 Days of Motivation and and Encouragement. Okay. Now, give people a bit of a background about yourself, your upbringing, how you got involved with the, the work that you've done, but also the reason behind your book and also the reason behind what the work is that you're doing, what you're hoping to achieve. Yeah, yeah, that's a, a lot to bite there, but I'm sure <laughs> I do the best I can. You know, I call myself the master encourager. You know, you got to be careful when you throw that master in front of it, but you know, the reason why I say that is I, I am a young person, well, not young, but I'm an adult, but as a young person growing up, I grew up in a household with an alcoholic dad who was, I mean, when I say raging, he was a raging alcoholic. And so he raged from the time I was born until the time he died when I was 16. And so I remember growing up, never really you know, I had peaceful days, but always during my day, uh, a little someone would tap on my shoulder and say, listen, buddy, don't you get too happy because you got to go home tonight. So, you know, growing up, it was it was very unbalanced on top of the unbalanced I had. I grew up in poverty. So both my parents worked full time, but my dad's money went to drinking. My mom was a housekeeper. So she raised four kids with just cleaning homes, you know, with the alcoholic dad and all that going on in a home. As far as dysfunction, you know, he passed it down to us. And then my siblings tried to raise me the best way they could, but they were only using the tools that they had. My neighborhood, unfortunately, all their homes were identical to mine. So you just Mm. have all this dysfunction going on at once. So I had a lot of crime in my neighborhood, a lot of addiction, you know, and just no one really trying to pull themselves out of it. But my story and what makes it powerful and what is the catalyst to what makes me want to help other people is with my wounds and my scars, I was able to come out of that. And I was able to live in it, but not become it. And so that is my message to people. You know, we go through things in life, But I feel that if you look at things from the proper perspective, it gives you the energy and it gives you the the push and the tenacity to go after what you want in your life. So, you know, that is really the pinnacle of what pushed me to do what I do. Now, I took that and I created a youth development program. It became successful. Then I created a nonprofit organization. And so my message is motivating motivating and encouraging and trying to walk beside people to get them to be the best version of themselves. 
What was the reason to actually get into the motivational side? How did you get to that from, say, when you finished school? Because obviously you, you finished school and your next step. So how did you get to that point? You know, when I created my youth development component, it's done in workshop form. And so I realized that, you know, I run these two-day workshops. I'm speaking in groups. And so, you know, I, I saw the response that I got in that setting and that's what pushed me to bring it to a podium and make it a little bit more concrete. So, you know, watching the results of how people moved to some of the information that I passed on to them made it clear to me that that was part of my purpose and what, you know, I, I should be doing. So that that's I hope I answered that good enough for you. Yeah. And did you actually work before then or did you go straight into working with work groups? But I think you mentioned when we had our first discussion, you mentioned you did social work. Is that correct? Right, right. So social work is what I went into. And so I went into the social work because of that, the trauma I went through as a youth. I wanted to help other young people that may have been coming through the same the same road. Now, once I got there, I, I did the basal social work with the foster care agency, but they continued to give me curriculums. Like they would buy a curriculum off the computer, give it to me, don't, don't even work it out. And then when it didn't work, they would blame me for the fact that they gave me this curriculum and it didn't work. So that motivated me to create my own. So I had the social work background, growing up in the trauma, and then the fact that these people kept giving me these curriculums that were not valuable, I created my own curriculum and that kind of catapulted me into the world of the encouraging and, and being motivating. So what was the key thing that you were looking for when you were creating your own program? Because obviously you're looking to extract certain lessons and certain pieces of the information. I know obviously when you're in the trenches and you're working on doing the social work, there's a number of lessons that you pick up because you're interacting with people on a day-to-day -day basis. So what were the principles that we were starting to pick out? What were the patterns that you were picking out that you thought, okay, this could be something that could fit into a bigger program? You know, what, what I wanted is something, you know, so often the ones that they would give me were so, even though they were labeled as personal, they, they weren't personal at all. So what I wanted was a product that was able to engage. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to have almost the feel of warmth and person to person, even though I'm writing it on paper. And what's beautiful about it is the fact that, number one, I facilitated and I wrote it, but because it's my brainchild, if you sit in my workshops, it gets so intense that it actually feels like a person is reaching out and actually touching you because I personalize it. And as I walk through writing it, I envision the young person that I was and the questions that I would have wanted answered as I was going through my personal struggle. So for people who are listening to the podcast, what were some of the questions that you wanted to answer and things that you were looking to use that could be useful to you to actually help you overcome a lot of the struggles and the challenges that you were dealing with. Right, right. One of the things that I realized helped me, but I know it's a question that a young person would have, is what do I do with all these things that I've endured? 
Mm-hmm. See, you start to create this pattern of surviving, but then you have a kit full of survival stories. What do I now do with these survival stories? And so what I wanted to do is to be able to create something where a person can walk back through their lives and start to look at what they overcame and start to find some value in it. But the value would be not only to comprehend it in the moment, but how can you use it as something you can pattern to number one, not recreate a situation, but also be able to use it as an instrument to help you to be successful, if that makes sense. Yeah. So you're actually not just using past experience, but you're also helping people to identify triggers and initial indicators of when behavior starts going the wrong way, which could actually negatively impact them. And that's what you're working on. You're trying to get people to find ways of solving their own problems. Yes. Yes, definitely. You know, and what I found with myself is anytime growing up, I felt like the life that I was modeling was anywhere consistent with the life that I was living, I was off track. Mm. So I would have to get back on a path and say, this looks too familiar because I knew that the life that I was living was not benefiting me. And so that if I was creating a new model, It had to be something that was so different than what I was in. So, you know, like you're saying, it calibrated and moved me from position to position and step to step. So tell the listeners a bit more about your program and how you structure it and how you go through your workshop, because that was a really fascinating story and process that you told me about. Yeah, what I do is the first and foremost is when I get 30 young people I do 30 young people at a time. So to to really set up the room, I ask for a cross-section of students. So I want 30 students that makes up what is represented in a building. So I want Mm -hmm. white, black, Latino. I want the honor roll student, the jock. So I want that group first. And Mm -hmm. so when I get them in the room, it's a two-day experiential exercise. But the first thing I do before I ask any questions about them personally is I unload and unveil my cracks, you know what I'm saying, and my imperfections before I Mm -hmm. even ask them anything. And that is so that I disarm them to make them feel like whatever they're going to say, you know, listen, this guy already put it on the table. I don't have to feel reserved. But then I run them through a process where I start with affirmation because I feel like we are products of our thought lives. So the first Mm -hmm. thing I want to target is how do these young people feel about themselves But not only how they think about it in an individual level, but the things that may have been told to them as they've been growing up or an event. And Mm. the reason why I do that is because I feel that it's the first brick in the foundation because what's been told to us and what we've come from is sometimes the basis of what we make all our decisions from. So I want them to target it immediately like, yo, you know what? Wow. You know what? When I was seven, I went through this horrific event. I'm now 14 and my decisions are still based on what happened to me when I was a young person. So I want them to start with the affirmation and then we start to move into things that deal with their characters. You know, I do an activity real quick that I'll tell you called Who Am I? Where they Mm -hmm. write down 10 words that describe who they are. Then they have to prioritize them. So now you got 10 words, good and bad, that describe you. 
Now you have to put them in priority order. Then once I have them put them in priority order, I walk them through a script for each word. So I have them listen to me. How did that word affect you? How did it affect your family members? What kind of decisions did you make? And they go through all 10. But after each one, I have them crumble it up and they drop it on the floor in front of them. So after all 10 are gone, that there's none in their hand. I then tell them, pick up the ones you want, but then the ones you don't want leave on the floor. So now they got to go through the paper and they got to decide, do I want to keep it or do I want to leave it? And then now once that is completed, we start to debrief it and it gets deep because now they have to evaluate. I have the words in my hand that I want to build on, but then there's words on the floor that I want to get rid of. And I explain to them, this starts to work. Because they'll say to me, you know, it's easy to write it on a piece of paper, but it's not that easy to eliminate it from your life. But I explain to them that the first step towards healing and change is identification. Mm -hmm. And when they wrote it on the paper, they identified it. Yeah. And they've already started in the right direction. Now you have a choice to either leave the room and not address what you wrote. Or you can leave the room and decide to make the decision that those papers on the floor are the papers that I now need to eliminate from my life on a permanent basis, but I have some work to do. That has to be really quite challenging for a lot of people because it's very personal, you could say honest assessment of themselves that they have to write down and prioritize and find out which ones are the most, you could say, prevalent and also important or the most ominous to them in certain cases. And going through that process, it must be quite upsetting for some people. Yeah, well, it is. But, you know, what I do when to set it up, especially with a teenager, is I explain to them that whatever they write, they don't have to share. So they know that right off the bat. I'm not tricking them that they're going to write something. And then once they complete it, I'm going to force them to show it to people. So I let them know that they're not going to show it to people. But yeah, I've had young people, as they go through the words, start to lose it. You'll start to see them get emotional. And I think what it is, it's not only reading the word on the paper, but it's the echo. Mm -hmm. See what I'm saying? Not only the echoes that they hear during the activity. You know, my workshop is done over a two-day period. And what I think that when people are dealing with things in their lives... The way that they avoid dealing with them is to create noise. Mm -hmm. See, you create noise because noise and scatter. That's why a lot of teenagers, they always got headphones in their ears because the silence is what really disturbs them. So being with me for those two days and there's silence and they have nothing else to listen to or concentrate on. But what we are doing, it amplifies everything. So you're right. It gets emotional. It gets deep. But remember, I I don't throw this activity on them like immediately. Mm -hmm. So this is something that I do a little bit further in the day. So we've done other activities to warm them up to get to that place. So there's been a nurturing that I've created. So it's not like, hey, what's your name? Can you write these 10 words down on a paper? We've done a journey before we get to the point where I have to, you know what I'm saying? It'd be a little crazy. Yeah. Uh, yeah. If I was like, hey, uh, hey, Jimmy, come here. Let, write down these 10 words and let's go through it. They, they're probably <laughs> throw tomatoes at me, man. <laughs> so what's a warm-up process that you use with them? How do you get them into that state of mind to be able to trust that they can do this and that they can actually work through the process? So, okay, 
I told you about the affirmation. So we do a yeah. nice affirmation exercise. Then I get them to grab an adjective name that describes their personality. They put it in front of their first name. And so every time they speak, they have to say the name. And so they have fun with that. Then I run them through an activity I call concentric circles, where I, I put them in an inside circle and in an outside circle. I run them through five questions. A person I respect and why I respect them. Qualities that I look for in a friend. If I can change something in the world, what would it be and why? A time that someone hurt me that I trusted. And then a time that I lost somebody that I really cared about. Now, they do this in an inside and outside circle. Five questions. One minute. Each person has a minute to speak. And then I rotate them. And so, again, we warming up the room. And what's nice about that is, you know, I got these 30 students that are from different walks of lives. Let me mm -hmm. tell you, after those five questions, the room, the, the essence in the room shifts right there. Because now you have all these young people who walked in the room. You know what's going on in the world right now. We don't have to go too far into yeah. that. But they walk into the room, they sit in a circle, and come on, they're, they're teenagers, they're looking around. And when they look around when they first come in the room, everybody's just a face. Black face, white face, Latino face. But when they finish this activity and they hit those five questions, every one of those faces become people. Yeah. And once they become people, there's an energy that shifts in the room because it whets an appetite. Now, first and foremost, you only get to speak to five people, but you got some good information from five people. That means you got 25 other people in that room. Now you're like, yo, you know what? I want to know about them, too. Mm. So now they put on their seatbelt and they say, let's go to another activity. So I missed Jimmy or Johnny in the last activity. And so each activity, you'll start seeing them trying to eyeball and find the kid like, yo, I want to know about him. So that's how we start easing them into some of these activities that become a little more intimate and self-reflective. I think the process, as we've discussed before, I think your process is actually very refreshing and very unique because there's a couple of things which you do from a integration and also you could say social engagement aspect where you come in, you more or less present yourself as a normal person with a background that's been very difficult that probably relates to quite a lot of the students that are out there because a lot of the students have got their own problems, their own lifestyles there, they've got their own challenges that they have doesn't matter which demographic you're in. Nobody's life is absolutely perfect. You might have some a little bit more better, but each person has got their own baggage. It doesn't matter what situation you're in. You can be from the wealthiest part of town, but you could have an absent father or mother that's got absolutely no interest in you. You just left your own devices, or you can have somebody that's in one of the poorest communities in town, but the mother and the father of the unit is really, really tight. Right. It doesn't matter what the situation is, but the fact that you've come from a background that's really been quite difficult and quite challenging, and you open yourself up in a trusting way and say, look, here's my story. I'm completely flawed. This is who I am. And that means that the students that are in their group are looking at you and it's like, well, okay, he's been, he's been vulnerable. He's being honest. He's not hiding anything. And it allows them to trust you a lot easier which helps with the next stage, which I think is really interesting because you've got people in small groups, which means they've got an easy way to interact with other people. And now you're starting with the adjective and they're starting the engagement process. And now they're starting with good things, positive things that they want to role model or that want to identify. And these are qualities that other people will look out and pick out of them. 
And if it's something that resonates with them, it's like, I know what he's saying. He's like me. Because now what you're doing is you're getting that people are syncing verbally and visually because now they can identify with the other person because it's something that they understand and can relate to. And because it's in a small environment, they don't have the influence of other people that can affect their decision-making or the social hierarchy within their friends group is not determining how they respond. Because now they respond, everybody's responding the same, which means everybody has to trust the other person and they've got to interact with the other person in a way that's going to be fair with the other people. So they have to interact in a common way, which makes it really easy to engage with other people and to trust them and also want to be curious about other people. Because each person might be admiring the other person for some of the things that they've done or the type of experiences that they had or the type of person, or they could be identifying with that person's role model that they really like. And that's a really powerful way of getting people engaged with the whole process and actually make them feel normal. Because I think a lot of people feel abnormal, even though they don't realize that people are people and everybody's like the other person. At the end of the day, you're just a person. You just happen to be packaged in a different way. Yeah. Yeah, I need to bring you with me, Lance. Yeah. <laughs> when I go for my pitch, I do it, you know, a little streetwise and you break down the science. So you got to come with me when I go talk to my principal. Because <laughs> you, you walked it right through. See, some people understand my language and then they understand yours. See, some of the administrators would like you to talk to them a little bit before <laughs> I get to them. But that, yeah, that's spot on. Spot on, brother. Spot on. Yes, yes, exactly. So with the work that you continue doing, what have you seen have been the results of all of this? Because obviously the initial start is to get them warmed up and get them involved. Now the next stage of the program, the workshop that you do, obviously goes into other aspects of it. So how does the motivation kick in to actually get people to realize that they can actually change their decisions and the effect of their decisions in their life? Well, you know, what happens, what's beautiful is, like you're saying with the commonalities, that group of 30, and there's kids that are being there with kids they've been going to school with since kindergarten. You know, they come, they become a family. Mm-hmm. The support system in that room, I'm getting chills when I tell you, it's outrageous. So what happens is part of the goals or attacking a goal is now you know you got 20, 29 other people that's in your corner. Mm -hmm. Like when they're finished the two days and say I'm a student and I've laid out my plan subconsciously. And then at the end, sometimes I actually verbally say it is now we are all accountable to each other. So when I see Jimmy walking down the hall and Jimmy's got a problem with cutting class or fighting and I see him and I tap him on the shoulder and I say, hey, Jim, when we were in power of peace, what did you say? And so what you start to have is these young people become accountable to each other and actually open to the point where there's some that take it a step further where, I mean, there's phone calls, there's lunch dates. And so, you know, in the two day period, we put everything on the table. And so rarely is there one hiding off in the corner. And so they get to build off of their experience because they have accountability with their group. Now, what's beautiful about that now, you say smaller groups, When I go into a school, they commit to six of these workshops. And what I do is I give them T-shirts at the end. And the only way you can have one of my T-shirts is by going through my program. I don't give one out for anything else. So if you see someone with a shirt on, you know for a fact that they went through that same experience you did. So what now happens is now you got a building. 
So you walk past a student that wasn't in your group of 30. They're your family member. And you start to get this this family-like culture where the program is power of peace. And I call them my power of peace family. And you'll start to see them start to integrate and expand. And for my schools that I've been in for like four and five years, it's beautiful. It's beautiful because that's exactly what it is. You know, I mean, to the point where I walk in a building and I feel that myself. Like, it's not like I'm walking into a school. I'm going to a family reunion. You know, I'm in six or seven different high schools. When I pack my bag and I'm going to a specific high school, in my mind, I know teachers there that I could go have a beer with and have dinner with. When I walk in the building, the love that you feel, because as you go through in groups of 30 and you start to peel back the layers and become transparent like that, there's these bonds that are created that are that are. And what's beautiful is one of the ground rules is confidentiality. So you would think as teenagers, when they're giving up this personal information. Now, I've been doing this since 2008. Never have I had a problem with somebody taking someone's dirt out in the hallway and telling anyone. But the problem that I have is they won't even share what they went through in the group. So I can't even help me recruit. <laughs> I want them to help me recruit. But when a student comes and says, hey, hey uh, Susie, w- what did you go through in there? Susie says, I can't tell you because they, they're tight lipped. And I have mm. to tell them, listen, you can't tell them specifics, but you got to give them, you know, something to go by so I can get them in the room. But mm. a lot of them, what they say is, listen, trust me. You just have to go and you will love it. And like I told you when we spoke earlier, the beauty is to see a kid in my group and they kind of twist their head like dogs do when they're looking at you trying to figure things out. And I'll say to them, I say, hey, listen, what, what's, what's going on over there? And they say, now I know what they were talking about. That feeling overcomes them. And they say, this is why my friend told me to come. So, you know, sometimes I laugh when I leave with the check in my pocket, Lance, because they don't know. I would have did it for free, man. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You've just said it. Yeah, yeah. I would have did it for free. The way that you structured it is phenomenally powerful. And we've discussed it before because, obviously, the psychology that you use behind it is actually really, really powerful because you're using a lot of the really strong processes of social bonding. Because one, people are making themselves vulnerable. So they're allowing themselves to to put themselves in another person's position of trust. They have to trust the other person. But because it's a common process that each one goes through, the other person has to also share themselves, which means each person is, you could say, allowing the other person to be trusted because they're allowing themselves to be vulnerable. Because the first thing that people tend to do is that they will try and act to protect themselves. It's It's a natural form of self-preservation it's a way that you behave if you're in a group that you don't know or trust you mentioned it when you go into school that you don't know so the feeling is different the sensation is different you don't get that same response you don't get that same feeling of love but when you go back to school that you know that you've been there before you've got that feeling of love that recognition that you've got that sensation because it's not just something which is just a pure sensation of emotion and recognition I read up about something recently as a previous interview I did with another guest, and she was talking about sensory feedback and responses that you could detect outside of your body. 
And one of the things that we were talking about is fascia. Now, throughout the whole body, you've got not just your tendons, your muscles, your nerves, everything else. You've also got fascia. And fascia is almost like a spider web throughout your whole body. It provides a, a superstructure through your body. It connects your, your skin with your muscles. With your, it's very fine. It's, as I said, it's like a spider web. It connects through everything. And apparently, most of it is made up of, out of water. And one of the things that they found out is that this can actually sense information, just like, well, not like nerves, because it's mostly filled up with water, but the response that it gets is a lot faster than what nerves are, because nerves have to run up the, the various ganglia and the, and the communication channels. But because this is right through your whole body, your sensory response that you get is a lot more, you could say, visceral. It's a lot more real. Mm -hmm. So I think... It's, it's a theory. I've not confirmed that as yet. I think when you're walking in, you're not just seeing the other people's reaction and you're hearing people's reaction, which gives you the initial feedback. But you've also got the sensory feedback from your skin, what you see, what you hear. And you also get this input that you've got through your fascia, which is this very sensitive, almost like a network that is picking up information. And I think it's a way of picking up vibration. And I think that's also when people hear sound and they feel sound that comes through all of this, your skin, your bones, everything else that you're feeling it through your body. So I think it's the same thing what happens when, when you're in a group like that is that you're not just feeling other people's uh, or not just seeing other people's emotion, hearing what they're saying, what they're sharing, and you're connecting with them because you actually see with them. So you've got this social engagement, this trusting, but you're also feeling what the other person is feeling. Because I, I do think that people feel things outside of what they normally sense through nerves and skin and everything else. Because you mentioned it and you probably felt it when you walk in. Sometimes people say, oh, I could cut the atmosphere with a knife. Right. And it's that sensory feedback. It's not always visible that something's wrong. You get that sensory feedback. And some people say the hairs on the back of my neck stood up. And I think these are all ways that you actually sense this information. But the other interesting thing is because you're creating this trust model, you're creating this tribe, now what you're doing is that you're using the whole concept of connecting people together in a group, into a common group, which they all understand, because they now part of your group, but they're also part of their own group. So you'll have your small group of fives, and they're sharing information, they're trusting each other, they're sharing their own stories and their life stories, and people are connecting but now they're bonding because they're in this group and they can recognize other people in the group because although they get the T-shirt at the end, that whole engagement process is like building your own family and you become, you become reliant on them and you trust them and you're building that whole connection, that tribal connection in a way. But it's the way that's positive to them which helps them to then go to the next stage because now they know they can rely on somebody. They've got somebody that's got their back. So even if they make a mistake, they know that somebody's going to look after them like a gang member, yeah. but in a positive way. Yes, yes, definitely, definitely. You know, and when I first put my program together, gang activity was big. You know, you and I talked about it. I took yeah. rival gangs away, man. It was the stupidest thing in the world to do, but I got away with it. I got away with it. You know, I was a rookie. I had just put my program together and a high school says, listen, I have two rival gangs that they're destroying my building. Will you be willing to do some, some peace work? And I, I grabbed them and we went away for a weekend. And, you know, like I told you, when we spoke before, I couldn't stop the violence in the community, but those guys left that retreat and promised that they would not do anything within that building. That building became sacred ground. 
And it was really powerful. It was powerful, you know what I mean, to actually see that because it was, you know, I had no idea the power that was in it, but I saw it once it was completed. How have you found that the effect has been on the local community? How has that changed the local community and just the schools overall? Have the students become a lot more positive and also productive? And also have they achieved a lot more with their studies and their life overall? What's been the long-term benefit to them? Well, listen, I have been in the school for a couple years. And to give you an example, I did an adult workshop in that community. So I brought some adults in who were curious about what I do. And a woman comes in and I run them through like maybe a four or five hour snapshot of what I do in the two days. Mm-hmm. And when we wrap up the adult workshop, this lady raises a hand and she says, listen, I got a confession. And I'm like, oh boy, here we go. And she says, I went to that school and she felt the energy. She felt the positive light energy. And she was like, she couldn't understand it when she felt it when she was there. But as I walked her through the process of what I did with the kids, she said there was this camaraderie that you could see that was nonverbal. You could just Mm. sense it. You know what I mean? So this woman was able to pick up on that. But as far as achievement with the kids... Yeah, because what happens is, is when you say I relate to all, it's beautiful how I can get the rich kid from the rich neighborhood that somehow finds something in my story that identifies with it and just rocks with me. So they they leave the group, you know, with social media, even though I'm in all these different places, I never truly leave them because I'm only an inbox away from reaching out and touching me. But then the kids on the fringe are the ones that explode because they've now seen this guy who was me. You know, when I get the kid that is my mirror, you know what I'm saying? Not all, but there's a lot of them that now, you know, hope is major. And I've met a teenager that didn't have hope. And that's the scariest thing in the world you ever want to witness. See a teenager without hope. It's scary. I mean, really, I don't wish it on any teenager, but I've met a teenager without hope. But when you're able to instill hope, it's amazing to watch them start to run in it. But they get frustrated, you know, and what, you know, I have one kid, he was kind of funny. So he comes to visit me. And so he's a knucklehead. He likes to get into trouble. But he came to my group. He's now part of the group. Now he knows that he's accountable not only to me, but the other 30 in the group. He comes in my room and he's like, dude, I want a day off. He wanted a day <laughs> off. He's like, can, can you just pretend I didn't meet you for one day? He just wanted to walk in the building and be a maniac again. You know what I'm saying? And he was crying, bro. I mean, punching the wall and everything. He's like, I just want one day off. But, you know, it was real. The fact that he knew that if he did something, somebody was going to tell me. Or if he did something, somebody in the group was going to tell. Drove him to be successful, man. And what has he done going on? What is what oh, he oh, he's, got he's involved a, in? He wrote me. He put something on my face. He's a man now. You know, he's a man now. Stephen Pride is his name. But, oh, man, he graduated high school. You know, college is not for everyone. So he works. 
But he, he has a legitimate job and he constantly will remind me of the things that I planted in his mind when times get rough. Mm. So every so often I get the inbox like, bro, because what happened before I developed my program, I always had the gift to really relate to teenagers. So one of my social work programs, I was a counselor in a school where I only had a caseload of maybe like 15 kids. But once my caseload, you know, they start telling their friends I had an office. And so my office became the area where they congregated. Mm. So every time they had lunch, you know, I would have five or six in my office. And whenever I would get them in my office, I would teach them. A lot of times they were young African-American boys. And so I would just not hit them with the whole race thing, but just what it is to be a responsible man. Of course, the mm. black man, because I'm black. But I'm saying just the things that you need to do to frame out what a responsible father, a responsible young adult. And I say it because there's a slew of them that now on social media are like, you know, my man, you just the stuff that you were telling us in high school when it happens now in my adulthood. You know, I just want to thank you. So if you don't mind me asking, what's some of the examples? Because I know, obviously, when somebody grows up in a really difficult environment, and obviously the current conditions are really difficult with the uprisings and the displeasure of some of the things that have happened, which have been very upsetting. But when people are that young, they're building their identity, because this is, again, something we spoke about quite in depth, is that when you grow up in a group and you're building your own identity, especially outside of the family, because now what you're doing is you're trying to find your own way, you find your own identity and you're associating with other people in your peer group and friends in your local kind of neighborhood or you know some of the people at school. You start identifying with certain people depending on either the background that you're in or the choices that you make or some of the positions that you put in. Now, the situation can get quite difficult because now what happens is that you, with, with your program, you're actually almost fighting that external familial bond outside of the family within the group because he's now created his own external family. And that must be quite challenging. So how do you get them to look at it with a different perspective to see that they can actually be more responsible and achieve more? by breaking out of that identity. Because if you have a gang, their bond is actually quite strong because they use the same process as what you're doing in your program, but it's over a longer period of time. But obviously that's a lot more of a manipulative process to actually keep people in the group for their own kind of ends. So how do you actually get people to get out of that process and that mindset and that frame so that they can look at it with a different perspective and realize that they've got something better that they can achieve with their life and their choices? The beauty of having them for two days is the fact that I don't have to rush. Now, that's a great question that you asked me. What I do is obviously that's not all kids in my group. So when mm. I identify that in a student, I dispel everything that they build on. I purposely, okay. everything that they pull from that negative group, mm. I take it and I destroy it. An example, gang members, all right? A gang member will do a drive-by shooting. So he'll go up the block, drive in his car, shoot out the window at a rival gang, come back around the corner to your house, sit on your porch, and not tell you he just did it, Lance. I mean, come on. So he's sitting on your porch. He just tried to kill somebody, but doesn't tell you. And then I ask him a question. 
is that's how a family member treats you? He just put you in harm's way. You can get killed. Yeah. So what I do is I take these things that they put into place as they call it word is bond. It's what they live by. And I carefully dismantle it without saying I'm dismantling it. But what I do is once I remove a negative, I replace it with a positive. You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So what I explain to them is your gang leader will get you to go out in the street and sell drugs at a young age because they know you won't go to prison like an adult. But then look at me. What I do is I'm out and I'm pushing, get your diploma, go to college and better your life. Two men, same age, two men with two different motives. And so what I do is I start to get them to identify with the me's rather than identifying with the gang leaders. Hmm. You see what I'm saying? And so the good thing, I mean, in a perfect world You know, I'm with them for a period of time, but the ones that are really, really entrenched, Lance, and see, this is why I didn't like social work, is, dude, I'm talking about right down to my phone number, bro. I mean, it's not professional, but some of these guys got me on hot call. I'm talking about I get 2 o'clock in the morning, 3 o'clock in the morning calls, bro. You know, and I got to do it. I mean, some people say it's unprofessional, but some of these guys got me on call like that, man. Text message, boom, Mike, listen, it's hot. I'm about to do A, B, and C. Help me. And some of them, I have to go that far. Well. Yeah, I have to go. Not a lot, but there's quite mm -hmm. a few where I have to put it on. Listen, call me. Let me know. And every so often, I'll get that call. Like, listen, you know, I'm in my house. This is what just happened. Listen, I need you to tell me what I need to do. That's actually quite valuable because the the big thing that I think I'm picking out of that is that although teenagers want to make the right choices, I don't think they're always sitting with the correct mental tools and decision-making frameworks to actually make the right choices because their reference of which ones are the right choices are not always that obvious. And the other, I think, really interesting aspect that you're highlighting, especially with the example with the positive and the negative is like, here's a example that you probably know and doing, but here is another example of what you can be doing. So there are options for you, but here you make the decisions. So here's how you go about it. And it gives people a bit of clarity because I think the big thing that people struggle with and from what I've seen is that most of the time people want to make the right decision, but they don't always have the structure in place to be able to know how to make the right decision. And sometimes the most effective way is to actually have an example that they can follow. And sometimes that has to be somebody that they can relate to immediately. Because if they don't have a good way of relating to somebody to actually get that example, then all it is is just information and it's misrepresented. And I think the big thing is that because social media feeds this really uneven example of what a good life is or what it's supposed to be, people easily understand that because that is what they want to, but they don't realize sometimes what is the best way of actually going about it. They don't always fully want to do it that way because they don't have somebody that they can easily relate to. And again, with your group, what you're doing is that you're creating a structure, a group of people that all support each other and that's the most important part of it is because they're supporting each other and the other thing is accountability by keeping people accountable and saying that they've got confidentiality now what you've done is that you've given the person one authority 
Two, you've told them they're responsible for their decisions. And three, they've been giving their own confidence. So those are really good points to highlight for somebody's identity, because now what you're doing is that you're not saying bad things about them. You're not saying they're bad or stupid or anything of that nature. You're giving them an example of you can be positive, you can be accountable, and you can be an example. And here's how you go about a day to day. And if you fall or you struggle, you've gotten out. And the most important thing is people don't always know what that out is. And even adults don't know what that out is. They don't always have that out. And mentors are really, really powerful. Mm-hmm. But sometimes your peers can be just as strong to help keep you on the direction you need to go. You just sometimes need to take that step and make the decision and sometimes ask for help and put yourself in a position where you need to ask for help. Because it's really difficult because nobody wants to admit that they're wrong. But if you've got a group where everyone has admitted that they're wrong, then everybody starts on scratch. Nobody's better than the other person. And I think that's a really valuable point is because everybody starts on scratch. Everybody's in the same position. Some will be slightly different to the other person, but at the end of the day, they're all in the same position. They're all starting at zero in that aspect, which means it's easier for people to relate because the other thing that happens is same thing with gangs or friends or anything else, any group that you have. People have this automatic social structure that they put up. They've got this hierarchy that they put up. It is who's better, who's more important, who's got the authority. And then they'll start negotiating on that in between themselves to find out what their status is in with a group and who can say what. Now, what happens is that if you have a leader in the group saying one thing, other people will conform to that. And if that person acts in a way that's irresponsible, that's negative, or that's denigrating, or that's saying remarks which are wrong, other people will automatically try and map their behavior to that because they want to be accepted. Nobody wants to be unaccepted. Nobody wants to be a loner because it's a threat to them. They feel threatened. And it comes down to the fact is that if people feel threatened, they feel on their own. They go into survival mode because then they go into a fight or flight response. And then they start making decisions that is for self-preservation. I think you can probably remember when you were young and your, your dad was raging. Your self-preservation mode was, how do I get out of here? Yeah. Where do I go? What do I do? What, do? what choices do I have? You know, how can I protect myself? Because you're trying to get to a point of safety. So sometimes because you're in that stress position, you try and look for the best out. And sometimes it's not the best out. Got it. And I think your program is really powerful because you're scratching all of that and put everybody on a common ground. Now you build them up to a point where they have to be responsible. They have to be accountable. And they have to be able to make their own decision. They become their own personal responsible person. In the end of the day, I think everybody wants to be responsible. They want to have autonomy. They want to be able to make their own decisions and actually have a certain amount of respect for making those decisions. And the more you give them that opportunity, the more you ask them to be responsible and respectable and, you know, make the choices which are going to be better for them long term, then it's going to be the, the direction that they want to go. Because now what you're doing is that, as you've said, you've got a mixed group of students of all races, classes, and everything else. And you've created a common ground. And it's similar to the military. If you're in the military situation, everybody's on the same ground. If, if you're in a bad place, it doesn't matter what the situation is, you become brothers. Yeah. And it's the same thing. You're creating a brotherhood in that way. And that means that you know they're responsible for the other person. So I think it's it's admirable the way that you've done it. And I think it's very, very fascinating in the way that it's working because you're using a lot of 
fantastic social bonding processes, which means that it allows people to develop themselves in a very controlled and very safe environment. Because the other thing is that people feel safe. As soon as people feel safe, they think in a different way. I'm sure you must have experienced that where you feel when you got into a better personal situation, when you started feeling safe, you felt like your choices felt a lot better. You felt like you obviously felt calmer, but it also felt that you had a bit of hope because now you know you've got a way out and you can actually do something instead of trying to hunker down and protect yourself all the time. Yeah, definitely. I agree. I admire you for what you've done because you've structured something in a way that's, uh, I think it's going to be way beyond anything. Because I think we, you mentioned that some of the uh, social workers at the school actually were jealous of your progress and how yeah, you actually... Yeah, they, they get pissed off. They get pissed <laughs> off. You know, they come in the room and because and, what happened is I'll have a student you know, drop a bomb. They'll they'll give up something that, you know, sometimes like we were talking about earlier, you know, some of them don't go home after my groups. You know, they've, they've devolved something in the group where there's abuse at home and, and they're going to have to go into child protective custody. But, you know, a social worker come in and they'll be like, I've been working with them for three years and he's never said anything. And I'm like, hey, sorry. And And what's crazy about it is, you know, I have a pre and post test that I give and you can't come on you me and you just had this conversation there's no way I can measure what goes on in that room legitimately but I yeah. had to create a tool because in the beginning I you know I was I was stubborn and I was like I'm feeling all this grooviness so I'm just going to walk into places and say you got to feel groovy in my program but you know you know you can't do that I need you know mm -hmm. that's anecdotal but I needed numbers yeah, I created this tool so that I can give people hardcore numbers, but you, you can't bottle what goes on in that room, man. It is quite amazing. So yeah, we get down to the nooks and the crannies in there. So as an example, how would you instruct somebody to actually start making a better choice and to identify a trigger and then find a way of actually changing it or, or they can actually make a different choice? You know, so say say I identify a girl in the group, she's given off some some hints of mom being abused, and then she gives me some jewels of she may be letting some boys put their hands on her, right? So I'll do this, Lance. I'll say, a girl that's dating a guy where mom is getting beat up by the boyfriend or the father, when the guy punches her, she looks and she says, I saw that before, so that's normalized. Guys hit girls and they don't retreat. But then I tell mm. them, if a girl grows up in a home and she's never seen that before, and that boyfriend punches her in the face, that girl's like, what the heck did you just do? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? She's like, you punch me? This is over. And mm. she breaks up with him. And so I show them events like that where they're like, holy cow, I never even thought about that. So what I want them to not do is to normalize the dysfunction. You know, you and I talked about it, it even with poverty. You know, when you talked about some of those guys that I, I talked to about a new way of living, you grow up in poverty and poverty is not only material, but, you know, it's a mentality. So you can pass on poverty to your son or daughter because the mentality is you always are entitled you know, an example is I hired a guy 
that I met in a, a program I did in a prison. He got out. I gave him a job, but he had that poverty mentality. So every workshop that I had, now he could have any t-shirt. Like I would give him 10 t-shirts if he wanted them, Lance. But every time he would finish a workshop, he's packing t-shirts in his bag. T-shirts he would pack in his bag, and I give out granola bars during the workshops. So at the end of each workshop, he's packing t-shirts in his bag and granolas. Now I'm checking this out and I'm letting it happen, but I'm, I'm on it. I know what's happening. That's a poverty mentality. See, that he, he hasn't trained himself to know that he can have a t-shirt whenever he wants to, and he doesn't have to put the, the granolas in the, you can have as many granolas as you want, but they grow up in that mentality of, I got to keep getting it. I got to keep getting it. Or we'll get a kids that I give out granolas and we'll be doing an activity and three granolas will fall out of their pocket. Dude, you can get a granola all day. Why do you have four <laughs> granola bars in your pocket? But it's that poverty mentality. And mm. so they have to break out of it. Because if they don't break out of it, you know, that can cause some trouble. So, yeah. you know, what I try to do is dispel some of those things. And, and that's that's my teaching. You know, when you leave here and a boy smacks you in the face, no, that's not okay. Mm. No, it's not okay. You need to break up with them and it's over. And we deal with some of those things on a concrete level. And building up self-respect and, and again, giving a certain amount of autonomy to them and giving a certain amount of self-respect because that's the, that, that's the big thing. I think it's because they, they don't have any confidence in their own decision-making, which is part of what you're trying to achieve. Yeah, yeah, yep. So, yeah, it's a fascinating process. Michael, I thoroughly enjoyed the interview. It's been fantastic. I appreciate the, the time that you've spent with me. Yeah. So tell us what's next on your agenda. What is it that you're working on at the moment? What's your, your next big thing? Apart from what you're doing on a day-to-day -day basis at the moment, what's your next plan? I have an online course, and it is it's my thing. And, and listen, your listeners are going to get me on a good time. I have, I'm giving out a free copy of my book. Yeah. All they have to do is go to shakethedirtexperience.com. Yeah. And when they go there, they'll get a free copy of my book. And within that link, you know, I have an audio version of my book. I have the uh, ebook. Uh, yeah, yeah, the ebook. Yeah, e and then my course. You know, they okay. get my course. And it's called Shake the Dirt Experience. And, you know, not to, to go too in detail, it, it really is, uh, I call it a 10-day challenge. And yep. what it does is it all that we just talked about in the last hour, I, I, I put it in the 10 days so that they can start getting a feel of what they've been through, what they've come through and what they've gone through and how they can use it as a catalyst for success. So that's my next major project. So I would love for them to reach out and try to give that a test for them. That sounds fantastic. I look forward to uh, you know follow the progress on that. And I hope to have another chat with you at a later stage. Once things are up and running, we can see what the progress has been about. Yeah. And uh, I look forward to that. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank Excellent. you for having me. It's a pleasure having you. When you support and review a podcast like this from someone like Lance, it gains more visibility and motivates him to produce more. What topics most interest you? The best topic gains a shout out on the podcast.